I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Uh, this episode comes out New Year's Day, and usually on holiday-themed episodes, we try to do something kind of goofy or silly and have fun with it because the holidays are weird and Christianity is weird around the holidays. But we probably, like many of you, have been also following the events happening in the actual Bethlehem that is still around today and in Palestine, more broadly in Gaza, the West Bank, etc. And we felt like it just wasn't the right tone to do that or we couldn't summon that tone and we also were uh struck by a a sermon that has gone viral by a lutheran pastor uh, munther isaac um palestinian pastor in in bethlehem talking about what's happening and uh, it picked up it got picked up all over tons of news outlets and we thought you know maybe we're not the best two people to talk about this right now but we also felt like we should talk it through uh, instead of doing something silly and we didn't have time to get a guest. And I think that it is important for us to sort of process it together in the new year coming out of Christmas time. And we're going to do our best. Maybe one uh, preface to it is if you uh, haven't heard the episode we did with Jonathan Katab a little while ago, that is pretty important. Uh, We did it in October. So lots of things have changed since then, but also lots of things have not changed. In fact, they've just gotten worse since that interview. So that is maybe a, a good place to start. But uh, I don't know, Matt, does that sound right to you? <laughs> We're starting the new yeah. year on a, on a huge bummer, but it seems like there's really no other way. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right to me. Wouldn't it be an awful podcast if I said no, that sounds wrong to me? <laughs> um, I think it's right to me because, um, well, here, this is why. Around Christmas time, now we're we've got a little bit of time between now and Christmas. But around Christmas time, like you'd mentioned, Munther Isaac, his his great Christ in the Rubble sermon went viral, and it was a great interjection, I think, into the business as usual kind of Christmas time. And I'm sure you know whatever a lot of people ignored it as people do, but I think for some people that might have been the first time they heard that there are Christians in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is maybe an important. <laughs> an important uncomfortable truth to draw out for people uh, because uh, there's a lot of propaganda, I think about who Palestinians are, what they look like and what they believe. Um, I mean, they're just as diverse as any country, I think. Um, but uh, there's been like active um, 
propaganda push to try to make you believe different things about Palestine. Um, one of them, <laughs> really a real bald-faced lie from the deputy mayor of Jerusalem just a few weeks ago, uh, she said that there were no Christians in Gaza and they'd all been driven out by Hamas. And um, that's not just stupid. It's a lie. It's a very bad lie. Um, there are Christians in Gaza. There are Christians in Palestine. There are Palestinian Christians. I'm here to say on this podcast. Um, <laughs> there are churches there. And I think what's so frustrating about the whole thing is that, um, you know, Israeli officials like the deputy mayor of Jerusalem and the IDF, they know very well that there are Christians in Palestine. They know very well that there are churches in Palestine because they've been actively destroying them and murdering them for weeks. So it's it's not <laughs> it's just not a lie that I think anyone should buy. And and I think maybe the Munther Isaac uh, sermon that came out around Christmas was maybe a good like, I don't know, demonstration that there are Christians that are still there who are still under fire, whose churches are being bombed and um you know all kinds of other of other things and i think that there's this really interesting dynamic going on in palestine at the moment that's worth drawing out and in, in maybe one of the um big overarching themes that our podcast likes to focus on and that is that there are uh a, there's a weird christianity kind of on both sides of this conflict um conflict is the wrong word genocide i think is probably the right word mm-hmm. um and that the, the way that Christianity falls on both lines is, I think, worth paying a lot of attention to. Um, highlighting that there are Christians in Palestine reveals an important tension within the ongoing genocide. Um, that there are Christians there who are being persecuted, who are, you know, being killed. But there are also Christians throughout Western countries like the U.S. who are actively pushing for more war and uh, increased bloodshed through all kinds of international aid and and other things as well. So I guess like that particular dynamic is something that we like to draw out in this show. And I think it's worth doing um, because there, there's like there are some productive and less productive ways to make sense of this particular like arrangement of Christianity. Like some people, you know, within the discourse of social media, popular opinion. I mean, I'm making these people up in my head in a certain <laughs> sense, but I've also just seen people say things like this on Twitter that, you know, like the, the Christians who are allocating aid money for Israel or something, right? They're enabling genocide and they aren't really Christians. You could say that. And I think there's like some uh, prophetic power to that rhetoric. And I'm here for that as far as it works. <laughs> but I think that there's something else that's going on here, too, that maybe is uh, more like religious studies, a religious studies take on this, a more grad school brained take on what's actually happening here. And uh, maybe the thesis for for this episode um, or for this observation is that Christians in the West who are complicit for enabling the genocide of Palestinians aren't doing so as an exception to their Christianity, but they're doing it because of their Christianity, because of the way that Western Christianity is um, alloyed with and dependent on, in a lot of ways, imperialism and the ways that like the particular arrangement of Christianity in the West is predicated on certain types of imperialism. So. In this episode, we're going to work through the ways that Christians come down on both sides of the equation in Palestine, not to like excuse Christians or say like, oh, and shouldn't we all just get along? Because <laughs> that's not the case. Um, but instead to think about like how Christianity often allies itself with fascistic and genocidal powers because of itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A complicated idea. 
Yeah, it is complicated and it is maybe a bit of a grad school brain thing, but it's also something that the Palestinian Christian movement, I think, has been pretty good at talking about. And something I've learned a lot from them is maybe how to think about it. Like um, Sabil, the Liberation Theology uh, Network um, in Palestine and abroad, the one that Jonathan Katab is part of in, in North America, uh, it dedicates a lot of time and resources to kind of really understanding and kind of deprogramming Christian Zionism as an idea, for example. And I think there is a real awareness that there are these Christian commitments at play that shape the geopolitics of Israel and Palestine and the region more broadly that are rooted in particular Christian ways of thinking. And there's a kind of sense that this is like an inter-Christian uh, dialogue in many respects. I mean, I'm sure I wouldn't speak for like people who are in Sabil necessarily or the or Palestinian Christians in general. You know, I'm sure there's a range of opinion on how best to talk about it. But I think you see this come through even in Mutter Isaac's uh, sermon, which we'll talk more about later. But you get this sense that there is a theology on one side of the violence and a theology on the other side of the violence. And the key is not to say that only, you know, there's only one theology actually, but instead to say, it's important to figure out what are the specific Christian mechanisms that make violence possible or make it legible in certain ways and not others. Um, and on the other side, what are the kinds of Christian mechanisms that make peace possible or, or nonviolent resistance possible and so on. And I think that's, it is something that you learn about in religious studies, but actually in a worse way, <laughs> because it's like unmoored from anybody actually doing anything about what's going on in the world. Uh, there's a kind of rhetoric that you get in social movements and liberation theologies that I think are, you know, they, they maybe speak to something different or there's more at stake in, in making that point. Yeah, that's right. You know, I said it was grad school brained and I think that's true, but maybe that's the first time I've used uh, grad school brained in a non-derogatory <laughs> way in this podcast. It's <laughs> a helpful right. concept. <laughs> Christianity right. is doing something because it's Christian and because it's like, you know, um, it's grafted and plugged itself into different types of, uh, uh, you know, political thought. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's helpful to take apart if you want to understand it and maybe push back against it and, and, you know, de devise like a, a theory of change that could actually thwart some of those um, those energies and those connections that Christianity has to imperialism and other types of gross fascism. Yeah. And I think it also is important to note, too, that like you said earlier, you know, there are Christians in Palestine and there are also there's a growing diaspora of Christian Palestinian Christians who are not in Palestine. And they have a, a pretty strong voice that has actually, it seems to me, I mean, who knows if this is just like my own um, understanding of the world enlarging or like noticing a trend. It could be, <laughs> it could be both, I guess. But it feels to me like even in the last couple of years, there's actually been a pretty rapid growth of publications related to Palestinian Christianity. You know, we've talked about Naim Atik, for example, on the show in the past, who's kind of like, one of the uh, the founders of um, Palestinian liberation theology, an Angl Anglican priest. Uh, but there have been so many voices. Munter Isaac is one of them. Um, there's folks like Mitri Raheb, uh, many, many others. There's kind of whole edited volumes of Christians in the Middle East and Palestine really thinking on, you know, what's going on. And these are all things that came out before October 7th. And, mm. you know, like why that is, I guess maybe we'll have to ask somebody else <laughs> to tell us. But I think it's important, too, to recognize that, like, 
Christianity is a minority in Palestine. There, before October 7, were estimated only about a thousand Christians in Gaza, which is not very many. Um, and, uh, you know, tens of thousands outside of Gaza and other parts of Palestine, like the West Bank and Jerusalem, um, and in Israel, of course, but uh, also a pretty strong minority. And nevertheless, that minority really punches beyond its weight in terms of trying to theorize and think through and reflect on what's happening and also trying to build the kinds of capacities that they feel they, they need to resist that occupation and uh, the apartheid and genocide of Israel in a, a nonviolent way. That's a, a commitment that many Christians have made in, in Palestine. So all that to say, like, I don't know, we're going to talk our way through this, I guess, for the next 40 minutes or something. But uh, there is a ton of stuff to read. Uh, weirdly enough, I guess Wiffenstock has published a bunch in English and Orbis has published a bunch in English. And uh, there are some other like university presses that have published more like academic studies. But all that to say, there's like no shortage of Christian voices out there. And I don't know, maybe someone needs to like put together some sort of reading list or syllabus or whatever the way that people do in other moments of crisis. But uh, all that to say, there's no shortage of actual Palestinians that you can find and should find and listen to. Maybe we'll list some in the show notes anyway that you can follow up. Yeah. On. Friend of the show, William Gibson, he uh, put together a list for the student Christian movement uh, in the UK. That is pretty good. So I'll link that in to you and we'll throw some other stuff in there. Why not? So much stuff to read and learn about and be mad about. Um, <laughs> among, among those things, um, Munther Isaac, he gave this great sermon uh, on Christmas called Christ in the Rubble. And we're going to talk about it in a minute. Um, but before we do, I do want to talk about this really funny Time article. Funny in a very dark way is what I mean to say. <laughs> um, in the worst way. Uh, so there's a, a Time magazine article. Well, not article. It's a, you know, it's on their website um, <laughs> about the Christ in the Rubble um, sermon and it's it's interesting first of all it's great to this is part of like the virality of that particular sermon and um, I mean good right <laughs> it's good that it's out there um, but it is kind of interesting an interesting dynamic in this article that I, I, I want to highlight really quickly so um, in the Times article it goes from um, a block quote from Munther Isaac talking about how the genocide has to stop and so on and then a pivot to this um, this poor journalist from Time, who I guess uh, whose name I don't even know off the top of my head, but they said they, right after this bit about uh, Munther Isaac calling for for the genocide to stop, they said, but genocide experts have offered a different opinion on whether these actions meet the United Nations definition of genocide, which is like the most like uh, dark thing I can imagine. You know, like this person who is literally a Palestinian, <laughs> um, yeah, laying it out there, and then. Uh, some ding dong from times it has to be like, well, but we asked the experts and they said this, um, maybe shut up. Yeah. yeah <laughs> okay. Exactly. Sorry. Uh, sorry. I mean, times magazine. <laughs> it's worth even really briefly, I guess maybe parsing out some of the details related to that at the moment. I mean, we are not going to talk about the whole crisis in great detail, but just to like pull out maybe some of the numbers and stats, um, we're recording this on December 29th. Um, which I'm sure things will be worse in a couple days when this comes out. But right now, the numbers are this. Um, over 21,000 people have been killed. Almost 56,000 people have been injured in Gaza since October 7. Uh, almost 5,000 Palestinians have been detained in the West Bank. Uh, almost the entire population of Gaza has been displaced. Uh, some people multiple times. You know, you get displaced and your house gets bombed and you have to go somewhere else because the shelter that you have is bombed. 
and uh, the whole thing is a complete disaster. I mean, you've all seen the headlines. I think we don't have to go into like the harrowing nature of it all, but it's like expert after expert is saying uh, it's the worst humanitarian crisis they've ever seen. People are saying that uh, if it's not a genocide, it borders on genocide. You know, there's all these ways that like NGOs and international development people and the UN and everybody else kind of maybe hedge their claims because they don't want to get in trouble or commit to something that maybe is like morally affective, but not legally comfortable for them or whatever. But I think, you know, you can't look at just those kind of bare numbers and stats and say that, like, I don't know, like best case scenario, let's say it's not a genocide. It's still an extremely very bad, awful thing. And it's absurd to kind of, I don't know, equivocate around some of these things. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Well, let's talk about Christ and the rebel for a minute. Um, it's good. I think um, if you haven't read it, first of all, you should definitely go read it. Um, and if you don't want to read it, there is a great video of Monther Isaac delivering it that you can go listen to as well. Uh, a lot of great um, illustrations and very explicit examples of the ways that liberation theology works. And I think um, what it could look like if you were a pastor or a theologian or somebody speaking publicly about it. So pretty instructive on, on that aspect. But there's a few analytical hooks in it that I think are really helpful to understanding the dynamic that we were talking about earlier, the ways that Christians are kind of on both sides. Uh, so uh, let's just talk about those those pieces. I mean, like I said, go read the whole thing. It's not very long, but let's just let's but let's just take the pieces that really apply to us in this situation. <laughs> I think it's good because uh, sometimes theology is just like find the sky um, kind of stuff, and you'll hear a sermon, and isn't it nice? Um, but I think what is good about this sermon is that there's some extremely helpful analytic pieces in here that um, should uh, beat Christians in the West over the head <laughs> with some <laughs> with some appeals to uh, truth and justice and uh, good theology. So I'm going to pull out this first piece here that comes pretty early on in the sermon, and uh, I'll just read it. The South African church taught us the concept of state theology defined as the theological justification of the status quo with its racism, capitalism, and totalitarianism. It does so by misusing theological concepts and biblical texts for its own political purposes. Here in Palestine, the Bible is weaponized against us, our very own sacred text. In our terminology in Palestine, we speak of the empire. Here we confront the theology of the empire, a disguise for superiority, supremacy, chosenness, and entitlement. It's sometimes given a nice cover using words like mission and evangelism, fulfillment of prophecy, and spreading freedom and liberty. The theology of the empire becomes a powerful tool to mask oppression under the cloak of divine sanction. It divides people into us and them. It dehumanizes and demonizes. It speaks of land without people, even when they know the land has people. And not just any people. It calls for emptying Gaza, just like it called for the ethnic cleansing in 1948, a divine miracle. It calls for us Palestinians to go to Egypt, maybe Jordan, or why not just the sea? I think this is pretty powerful rhetoric and also good analysis of uh, different types of theology that might exist that justify particular types of political arrangements of power, um, even when they um, are of the same religion. I mean, this is... This is Christian Zionism for sure, right? This is like kind of what it comes down to. Something that is really interesting, though, is, uh, well, 
Okay, I think on this podcast, we've said some things about using the phrase empire, like uncritically, but maybe this is a pretty good way to use it. Or um, mm-hmm. at least it's a it's a pretty powerful deployment of empire. Sometimes I think Christians, especially in North America, they'll use empire a little bit too <laughs> uncritically. <laughs> but here is probably as good as it gets, right? Empire, it's a powerful tool that uh, that does something, right? It's not just like a vague arrangement of powers and principalities, but it's something that does something to people. And I think that's a helpful way to frame what empire does and and maybe a good way to use it theologically. Yeah, I mean, I think and I hope that theology students will mine a sermon like this for lots of different conceptual things that are going on. But it is kind of as simple as, you know, it doesn't get more more clear cut than like this is the entire weight of the most powerful empire in the world, the United States, um, enabling a vassal imperial power, a settler colony like Israel to completely decimate um, not just Gaza, but the Palestinian population at large. And, you know, that is important and powerful rhetoric to be anti-imperialist, to be against the empire. Um Another thing I think that comes out in this is a pretty strident refusal of kind of like, we'll all find a way to get along later on. There are some pretty powerful prophetic uh, condemnations, warnings. Uh, I mean, prophet is really the term that came to my mind when I was reading this more than anything else, including like some of the crabbiest biblical prophets that you can remember, you know, people who are like actively warning their community that there's big, big problems going on. Um, and, uh, lots of parts kind of made me do a bit of a double take and think through my own relationship to the struggle and my daily job. And, you know, how am I kind of parsing all this out? And I'll just read, for example, one thing that I found pretty interesting. Um, he says, uh, I feel sorry for you talking about people who have not called for a ceasefire and don't recognize that this is a genocide. He says, I feel sorry for you. We will be okay. Despite the immense blow we've endured, we will recover. We will rise and stand up again from the midst of destruction, as we have always done as Palestinians, although this is by far the biggest blow we have received in a long time. But again, for those who are complicit, I feel sorry for you. Will you ever recover from this? Your charity, your words of shock after the genocide won't make a difference. Words of regret will not suffice for you. We will not accept your apology after the genocide. What has been done has been done. I want you to look in the mirror and ask, where was I? And I think that is such an important, uh, I don't know, like preemptively accusatory word to hear. And uh, I've heard Munter Isaac and others say elsewhere that inevitably when things, what whatever, calm down, whatever that means, when the, the guns stop being as aggressive as they are right now, although they're not going to go away, you know, inevitably the West is going to rush to deliver millions of dollars in aid to Gaza and to Palestinians more generally, which is what they were doing before October 7 as well. And uh, a lot of Palestinian Christians have been saying, you know, there's a really profound irony and just like, it's kind of like paying for your conscience to be clear rather than actually dealing with the structural injustice of it all and kind of taking the risk that your conscience might demand. So I think, I don't know, that's something that's kind of like, keeping me up through the Christmas season or really troubling my own conscience is to just, uh, I guess, keep the fire on internally to be like, yeah, I do want to survive this crisis with my own conscience intact as well. <laughs> you know, that's uh, an important kind of word, I think, for those of us who are outside of the the situation in an immediate way to think about, yeah, what are we doing and what does it mean to act in solidarity in a meaningful way in a time like that? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, complicity is a big theme within the Christ in the Rebel sermon. And I'll, I'll read another piece of it here in a minute. But uh, when I first I read the sermon, I didn't listen to it. I'm a reader, not a listener. It's too hard. Um, <laughs> I guess ironic <laughs> is, uh, as a person who has a podcast. But uh, <laughs> complicity is such an important idea within Christianity. Uh, this is something that Marika Rose pulls out in her book, Theology of Failure, where like one of the main functions of Christianity I think, and for worse, is uh, its ability. It's like its structure. It's ideologically opposed to the idea of complicity. Like there's always sort of a get out of jail free card in Christianity mm-hmm. when it comes to like what what you're actually responsible for. And there is something kind of jarring to have someone telling you like, "Sorry, this is <laughs> it's unforgivable. We're not gonna we're not gonna accept your apology when it's done or something." Um, I think that there's like probably a pretty strong allergy to Christians in in North America, in the West, to that particular condemnation. But, like, I don't know. Have, have an allergic reaction to that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, get your EpiPen out or something because you need to hear it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, there are so many powerful things uh, in the sermon, and I agree people should read it. It's not very long worth reading. Maybe we'll even play a bit of it at the end of this podcast or something, because I think the pathos of hearing Munther Isaac uh, deliver it is important, too. But uh, all that to say, like, it is an indictment also of the failure of Western Christianity to deal with this, um, you know, to oppose a genocide. And I think, as you said at the top of the show, Matt, that's something that we talk about on the show in many other contexts, like in Latin America, when you kind of read the history of liberation theology, It's a really bizarre thing to look at a country like Nicaragua, let's say, the Sandinista Revolution. All these Christians are opposing this dictator, Somoza. They win. They succeed. They they get four priests in government and lots of other Christians in there as well. And on the other side of the imperial barrier, you have Christians in the United States uh, working for the CIA because they're Christians, because they're Catholics explicitly, and they're actively sabotaging that, right? So the, the imperialist line, the class struggle around the world and other struggles too, they cut through the Christian community in a really important way, in a really troubling way. And I think that is something that Munther Isaac is also maybe alerting us to, that this is a, a struggle for what Christianity will be, what it is willing to kind of tolerate within itself. And I think for those of us who live kind of closer to the core of these uh, Christian ideologies, especially Christian Zionism in particular, it's essential to be thinking through, well, how am I maybe on, the, on the, the right side of that struggle in my own context. You know, Christian Zionism is a wild thing because it has taken so long to kind of build itself, uh, get its tendrils into church communities, political communities, and so on. And I think that means dismantling something like that is also going to take an incredibly long, patient uh, route to, to take that stuff apart. So just important to really have the, the stakes clear in a sermon like that. Yeah, definitely. Well, here's some more about complicity and Christianity specifically uh, from Munther Isaac. He says, we are outraged by the complicity of the church. Let it be clear. Silence is complicity and empty calls for peace without a ceasefire and an end to occupation and the shallow words of empathy without direct action are all under the banner of complicity. So here's my message. Gaza today has become the moral compass of the world. Gaza was hell on earth before October 7th. If you're not appalled by what's happening, if you're not shaken to your core, there's something wrong with your humanity. 
if we as Christians are not outraged by this genocide, by the weaponizing of the Bible to justify it, there's something wrong with our Christian witness and compromising the credibility of the gospel. If you fail to call this a genocide, it's on you. It's a sin and a darkness that you willingly embrace. Again, a really strong and accusatory tone, and he is correct. <laughs> I really do appreciate, though, even calling out like um, the, the empty calls for peace, which I think is um, actually really helpful. Um, and what I would want a lot of Christians in uh, the West and North America to hear that uh, you can't just say it's really complicated. It should just we, sh- we just need to call for peace. But there has to be a peace on a particular side. Right. There has to be a peace for a certain group of people. And uh, the peace can't be for the people who are <laughs> doing the genocide. Um, yeah. Well, anyways, I mean, a good as word. A, uh, Catholic social teaching has, I think, rightly said, if you want peace, you should work for justice. You know, it's it's not like a convenient gift that just sort of happens miraculously. It's the fruit of a lot of work to make relations right. Um, I think it might be good too to talk through just the the kind of rhetorical power of the the title of the sermon um, or the thing that I think has gone viral, this idea of God being under the rubble. Um, Luther Isaac says, uh, in our pain, anguish, and lament, we have searched for God and found him under the rubble in Gaza. Jesus became the victim of the very same violence of the empire. He was tortured, crucified. He bled out as others watched. He was killed and cried out in pain. My God, where are you? In Gaza today, God is under the rubble. And in this Christmas season, as we search for Jesus, he's to be found not on the side of Rome, but on our side of the wall. In a cave with a simple family, vulnerable, barely and miraculously surviving a massacre among a refugee family, this is where Jesus is found. Uh, I think, I mean, the rhetoric that God is under the rubble is something that Munther Isaac has been uh, saying for a while. Um, He's been tweeting about it, writing other things about it. But for whatever reason, that phrase, I think, has become like memified in a really interesting way. Um, Part of it, I think, also had to do with uh, at Munter Isaac's church. They made a a major scene and probably people have seen the photo, whether or not they know where it comes from. It's like a a bunch of rubble, a bunch of uh, stone and, you know, whatever, brick and so on kind of arranged. And then Jesus is uh, like a baby Jesus is is put in the midst of that as kind of a manger of, you know, destroyed stuff. And it's a pretty arresting image and a very powerful one. And then there was also a um, an icon or painting by Kelly Lattimore, who has done a lot of art that people I'm sure have seen um, around as well, uh, depicting the Holy Family buried under a bunch of rubble in, in Gaza. And I think like there's something kind of interesting about how that symbolism of God being uh, identified with the, the victims has been, I don't know, like having a moment or kind of catching fire a bit. Uh, you know, it, it is a very powerful image. And at the same time, like, it's strange how that sort of thing seems to catch people's imagination, interest and so on. And nevertheless, like, I don't know, the rhetoric only goes so far, the images only go so far at the end of the day, like Joe Biden is still licensing all this stuff to happen. He went to mass on Christmas, I'm sure, you know, and hasn't really, I don't know, found the moral courage to, to do something different, um, even though I'm sure he too has seen that kind of memified phrase at this point. So all that to say, I think it's an incredible um, theological statement. It's obviously inspiring some pretty amazing artistic responses as well. And I hope that it kind of catches on. It really expresses that uh, kind of God's preferential option for the poor and, and incarnating among the oppressed and as the oppressed and so on. Uh, and I think it maybe falls to the rest of us to then do something with that rhetoric or kind of figure out how to make it 
more than just like something that Time Magazine will write about or more than something that will just earn a, a New York Times headline and kind of disappear into, I don't know, the archive of, of history that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really quick aside. So important that I say this. Um, Kelly Lattimore, a fellow Greenville College graduate. Oh, wow. Um, I know. Can you believe that? I knew him for a hot minute. He graduated a few years before me. Um, but uh, that university is always talking up uh, how jars of clay went there. But I think the real <laughs> the real win here is that Kelly Lattimore went there. Um, pretty amazing. <laughs> you got to get him on here. I wouldn't, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't think he knows where I am. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend anyone go there, by the way. Just a really quick. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm not plugging it. I'm warning you against it. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think that the... Uh, God in the rubble is uh, it's good rhetoric. It's powerful theology. I think it is. Um, it's what we're talking about when we talk about the crucified people, though. Right. That's like that's it that uh, we have to recognize that God is particularly like the historical person of Jesus. Right. Is a person who inhabited the world like as a particular class of person. Um, and the people uh, and that particular class of people has not gone away. They haven't vanished. They're still here and they are people, you know, in in palestine um so anyways good theology liberation theology through and through i think it like it's a helpful and evocative uh phrase and uh maybe joe biden will be (laughs) maybe his heart will be strangely warmed by it or something probably not um but uh it's the correct witness and testimony to give in the moment yeah i think so too um well all right uh there's lots more to say and lots of other people saying things that are important. Uh, but maybe as we kind of get to the back half of the episode here, um, I think for me, the big question is what do Christians do about this? Uh, what can they do, especially those of us who are in the Imperial Corps? And I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of a silly question because it's like, well, how do you stop a genocide? You like can't do that by yourself. Um, it's important, I think, to recognize that. And uh, Christians have a bad habit of assuming that they're actually the most important people um, involved in a struggle <laughs> theologically or otherwise. And maybe we should even say that too. We, we should have said this at the top of the episode, but you know, it's not like, it's not like just because there are Christians in Palestine, that's why it's very bad what's happening there, right? Like it would be bad and incredibly bad. And Christians would, I hope, speak about it also if it was happening to non-Christian people um, of which the majority of the victims in Palestine are. Um, but, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say here is, um, you know, you, (laughs) when I am faced with like huge impossible things like that, I feel like Christianity has created this strange, like duality in me where on the one hand, I feel like I have the burden to go like, stop that as an individual, um, or some kind of like conscience pushes me in that direction. And at the, on the other hand, there's this like awareness that actually I like, can't do that. Like it's, uh, an overwhelming like manifestation of sin or something like that. Uh, so I think it might be just be good to parse out maybe realistically, like what is the the Christian piece of this equation? What is Christianity contributing to the violence and how can it maybe be mobilized against it? Uh, so Matt, um, I'm going to toss it to you. How, <laughs> how can Christians uh, in, engage uh, with this particular issue? Like how can we respond to Mother Isaac's uh, call to, you know, to, um, yeah, to to find God in the rubble. Yeah, well, thanks. I'll just lay out my my five my five year plan about how to change the world. Um, now, nah, I I mean, it is a big it's a big question. You can't do it by yourself. I think. Uh, okay, this is 
perhaps counterintuitive, but uh, to understand how to be a Christian anti-imperialist, maybe you have to think about the ways that we've gotten to the place that we are now with regards to like Christian Zionism and other types of like Christo-fascist types of thought. They didn't happen overnight, right? It's not like Christian Zionism emerged for the first time on October 7th or something. I don't think anyone believes that. But like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it is a long organized movement, you know, within not just churches, but within seminaries, within like the admin of denominations and, and so on. And I think that um, that is maybe part of the solution. I, I think, you know, whatever, we're, we're all mad about um, the genocide now, as we should be. And that's good. But I think you have to take that anger and turn it into a real divestment from types of imperialist theology and imperialist structures and imperialist politics that are just like everywhere within Christianity. And I, I mean, that's like a hard thing to do. Um, but it does require a lot of organizing. I, I guess like that is maybe the piece I want to emphasize is that like um, having an anti-imperialist theology is great, but you have to do the organizing work to make sure everyone knows that being a Christian Zionist or to be an imperialist of any stripe is bad and unpopular and will make people hate you <laughs> and be mean to you until you stop being that way. So I don't know. Um, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. You want to change the world? I guess you have to organize a really annoying campaign to make sure Christianity <laughs> is no longer like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something I find really interesting about the Fosna stuff, the Francis Sabiel North America. They have a ton of resources about Christian Zionism, understanding it, where did it come from? How does it work? Um, but they also talk about like how to talk to other Christians about it. And I think that is really important. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes we talk about organizing. I think it, it sort of triggers like the image of like a rally or being in the streets. And like, that's good. I think you should do that as a Christian person. Obviously everybody should do that. Very important, but organizing uh, effectively is also incredibly boring. <laughs> like the most effective organizing is the kind of stuff that happens um, outside of those big moments. Um, you know, even things as simple as like organizing a study group around a particular issue or idea organizing things like uh, learning opportunities, um, even whatever, webinars, guest speakers, et cetera, just organizing opportunities of, of dialogue or encounter, um, just being able to see other ways of, of thinking and kind of create a space for people to take apart their worldviews. I think that, at least for me, is like an incredibly hard discipline because I don't like to be patient <laughs> with evangelicals. Um, and uh, I don't know why that is probably some sort of deep self-hatred of my own evangelical past or something, but like <laughs> it's, it's important to, to create those kinds of spaces and to do that, that hard work of like finding out how Christian Zionism is maybe surfacing or does surface in conversations. You know, like I spend time in a lot of Christian movements and it's interesting to see like, where those little tells come from, especially as people talk about this conflict, where is it kind of cropping up? And I think having that attunement to like catching those tells and then thinking through how do I actually effectively maybe help this person understand like where that's coming from and, and how it's uh, manifesting that way at the end of the day, like that's the way that I've <laughs> divested from many of my problematic beliefs and <laughs> will still continue to divest of them. And I think also in that effort, like, I was saying there's this kind of 
uh, wave of Palestinian Christian stuff coming out in the last few years. And there's no shortage of resources that are really useful. Like I've been reading a lot of Mitri Raheb's stuff uh, lately. He wrote a great book called Decolonizing Palestine um, from Orbis that was published this year. And it uh, roots a lot of stuff um, in Christian Zionism and Israel in settler colonialism more broadly, which I think is really helpful, especially for people who have been exploring settler colonialism in other contexts, like in North America, for example. So there's points of contact there. Um, he also wrote a really good book called The Politics of Persecution, which is all about how uh, evangelical Christians love talking about how Christians are persecuted, especially in the Middle East, but they like don't know anything about them and have no idea how Christians in the Middle East think or feel about the, the situation around them and so on. Um, and he spends all this time kind of explaining, you know, what's really going on there. So all that to say, like, I think there's actually a wealth of information but uh, it takes the the boring organizing work of like making that information active and available and kind of getting to the places where it needs to be heard and sorted out. Yeah, I want to go back to something you were saying a minute ago about organizing being boring. And that's true. It is for sure. I think that people often will get confused about the difference between mobilizing and organizing. And that there's, right. there's a distinction there that's really helpful to know about if you want to be an activist. Um and uh, it's this mobilizing means you're getting people to go to something. They're going to go to a rally. They're going to go to a meeting. They're going to go to take some kind of action or whatever. You know, that's mobilizing. You're getting someone to do something. And that's great. You got to do that. <laughs> but when you're only mobilizing, you're kind of you can you can sometimes get like um, a lot of like breadth in a situation like you can get a lot of people to take a really simple action like writing their congressperson or whatever especially if you have like lots of handy digital tools at your hands and you can like you know have a pre-written letter they can send or whatever you can get like a lot of people to take one action but organizing is something a little bit different um when you're talking about organizing what you're doing is like building a network of people who will not just take actions, but like help direct future actions. Um, it, you know, organizing is about like creating a network that can exercise um, a type of power in the world in ways that mobilizing is not like, you know, um, mobilizing, you can get people to do something and that's good. Organizing is where like you will, you're basically training other activists to do your job. <laughs> and that's, that's like the end goal, right? Is that you want everyone to be, uh, have a certain type of like autonomy in in like some particular type of movement and be able to like pick up the pick up the necessary pieces and, and move on. And education, like you said a minute ago, is a really big piece of that, like having a good reading list and like going to meetings where you're talking about, um, you know, the situation in a particular part of the world or around a particular issue. It's always really good. But um, organizing is the piece I think that we're often missing. Uh, mm -hmm. Being an activist means that you have to do that. And that means like. Yeah, I don't know. Talking to people you don't know and building a big spreadsheet of people who might be interested in something. <laughs> and it's very hard, but um, probably should figure it out sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is very hard. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's right. Uh, organizing against something like Christian Zionism is important because on the flip side, Christians are actually really good at organizing intuitively. I think um, this is like uh, this is a thought I've been experimenting with in the last like six months or so. I think Christians are really good at organizing. They just do it for like basically bad or boring reasons. <laughs> like you can get Christians to do all kinds of wild stuff. You can get them to go to a big 
I'll give you a great example. When I was growing up in rural northern Michigan, my church, um, the evangelical church I went to for a while, they would organize this incredibly weird, weird meat dinner. And it was all kinds <laughs> of weird meats. And it was like a fundraiser. And so it would be like, you can go there and eat an alligator or a turtle or I don't know, whatever bizarre thing they had. And it's an incredibly weird thing to do. I wouldn't do it now. I'm a vegetarian. But uh, the idea is like, you know, they're doing they're putting on these events that are like actually tangential to going to church right like they're about building a community of people about having fun together and kind of creating some camaraderie and the by putting in that kind of time and effort of building relationships making connections and so on uh they also mobilize those kinds of uh networks when it comes to things like elections and right-wing christians especially do this in pretty effective ways uh they do it such that they could you know like get a Republican president elected who will like destroy Iraq, you know, <laughs> like they do it so that uh, they can uh, encourage someone like Donald Trump to recognize the capital of Israel being in Jerusalem, an incredibly bad and dangerous thing. Uh, like Christian Zionism is the fruit of decades of really hard work, organizing work of people on the Christian right. And I think it matters that we kind of understand that that's the process that's going on. It's not just like people being dumb or like stupid. It's like people putting in time and effort for ideas that are very bad. But uh, we have to also find a way to do that on the other side. I think it's weird on the left because I don't know what it is, but something about being a leftist, for me at least, makes me feel also alienated from people and like ironically antisocial and I like don't want to talk to people because I don't know I have these contrarian opinions or something but I think it, it matters that we kind of do that hard work especially to combat something like Christian Zionism you're only going to be able to combat these right-wing organizing efforts that lead to literal genocide by having a counterforce of of organizing and and you know that's what things like FOSNA are are kind of creating resources to do it's just uh people need to to do it myself included I have to I have to do it that's true. Uh, evangelicals, they know how to do organizing already. They just call it discipleship. And, exactly. Uh, exactly. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Well, OK, so that's that's our great our great sales pitch about organizing and thinking more about it. There's a lot of great books about it out there. Go read Labor Notes if you want to know about organizing <laughs> and like how to do it. Um, a lot of a lot of things, a lot of disparate and different ideas will be in the show notes of this one, I think. So <laughs> keep an eye out for that. Um, okay, cool. So right, Christians in in the West, they have to find ways to confront imperialist theology, uh, not just by other theology, but by actual organizing. So there's that. Um, and then the other the other big theme that we're talking about is like the complicity of Western Christians, which I think is um is so frustrating. I, but I guess kind of goes along with it though, that without, without things like FOSNA in the world, the friends of Sibyl network, uh, friends of Sibyl North America, sorry, we keep saying FOSNA and maybe not being explicit about it is that like, they give you so many good things to actually do that work. And I think it's, <laughs> it's so helpful because I mean, we all can't be experts in everything and not all of us want to read 13,000 books about whatever about Palestine but the stuff on the Fosna website is so good I think for calling out that complicity and maybe doing it in a way that might make western Christians actually hear it rather than kind of just bouncing off of them um so I don't know uh something to think about continually here I guess 
Yeah, well, um, I'm sure this will not be the last time that we talk about Palestine. The next time we'll have an actual Palestinian person on here to talk about it. But I think uh, starting off the year this way and also starting off the Christian liturgical year, um, my only hope, I guess, is that it really drives people to commit to ending this kind of genocide. I don't know, like, I'm sure that Israel is prepared to go on as long as it possibly can. It seems like there are voices in Israeli government and the military and so on that are pretty clearly genocidal. They want to push people out of Gaza. They want to settle the West Bank. I mean, it's not a secret. Uh, sometimes international institutions maybe, I don't know, like try to create some plausible deniability or create some space or whatever, but they, I think we should believe them when they say what they want to do. And uh, I hope that, you know, by at least like highlighting these kinds of big days, uh, like the new year, this kind of transitional moment or Christmas days that are supposed to be really hopeful days and recognizing that in a place like Gaza, those are not hopeful in Palestine more broadly, they're not hopeful. Um, I hope that kind of spurs something else on, but I don't know, tough to be having great holidays right now. Yeah, for real. Well, let's just keep on having hard holidays. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also donate to whatever Sabeel network is nearby you. If you're in the U.S., that's FOSNA. If you're in Canada, it's CFAS, the Canadian Friends of Sabeel. They are all over the place. If you just start looking up who, what country you're in and what Sabeel folks are there, I'm sure that you'll find them. Um, and good to donate to them, especially now. They're doing a lot of really important work, and it's incredibly mentally taxing, I'm sure, and uh, important stuff. Um, our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.